Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Welcome back to the show. This is the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and man, today have we got a special guest on the show for you. But before I introduce our guest, I want to give you a little context of who's speaking to you and how he got here. Last year, I had the distinct privilege of traveling overseas to Sydney, Australia, and, and attended and, and presented at the ASCA, Australian Strength Coaches Association, their national world conference and got to meet just some incredible coaches and individuals. One of our good friends that's been at Texas a couple times and, and just have gotten to know him over the years is Julian Jones, who's one of their high-level performance managers uh, there in Australia. Got to know him and, and got to know Dan Baker a little bit and meet those guys while I was over there. And just a wealth of knowledge, high-level professionalism, great coaches, and again, just shows you what an amazing uh, profession we're working in today. But hey, um, so that kind of gives you the bridge to who you're going to talk to. Today we have on the show Andrew Pike. Andrew, say hello to everybody. G'day, everyone. How are you going? So Andrew's coming in uh, from Down Under, and he is over here, by the way, of the ASCA sponsored and fully funded his trip. And he's here in Austin, Texas, just visiting with coaches, looking at facilities, picking brains, trying to see how we do things uh, differently than they do over and down under in Australia. So it's been a great visit so far, would you say, uh, Andrew? It's been uh, mind-blowing to say the least, I think, Donnie. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you for just taking a moment before you head back this weekend uh, to go back home. But could you just do do us all a, a quick little favor and just introduce yourself? Tell us, obviously, your name. This is Andrew Pike. Um where do you actually live in Australia? Give us your history, a little background, and how did you get to the role you're in? Give us a little career path, too. Okay, so I'm from the Gold Coast in Australia, which is on the east coast, a small town south of the capital city of the state, being Brisbane. And the Gold Coast is kind of famous for having good weather, um, quite good climate year-round, so it's really good for swimming. So in that little pocket there, if you go to a national championships in Australia for swimming especially, usually you'll get two or three clubs from the Gold Coast that will finish um, at the top of the point score or mm -hmm. you'll get another club from Brisbane or just that actual area there. So it's, it's a really good place to live if you're a swimmer. Uh, and I yeah, grew up there and started probably like a lot of people do in strength and conditioning as a, as a personal trainer. I uh, went to university twice. Um, during that time, I continued all of my strength and conditioning commitments mainly through the way of working in a high school and uh, running the high school program was fantastic for me for a lot of reasons. Uh, the first one being just my coaching of teenagers and, and essentially high school's been an uh, institute of sports of variety, a multitude of different types of sports that you can tap into and you, you start to notice the similarities between a lot of sports and then I guess the, the subtle differences that make every sport unique. Uh, that led me into swimming and I was very, very, very fortunate um, to latch onto a swimming club in at the end of 2014 um, that was just on the rise. And <clears throat> that particular swimming club, uh, six of our swimmers went to Rio and one of them, David Morgan, got a bronze medal. That's incredible. Yeah. And since then at every world championships, we've had multiple swimmers medal. Um, so at the moment, we've got two girls that made the world final uh, for 1,500 and 800. So they're behind Katie Ledecky, who's obviously a famous US swimmer. Uh, we had six on the national team, hoping to get a couple more on the national team for Tokyo. And we also had four that were world finalists at the, at the university games, which I, I guess is that next tier down uh, in some Olympic sports. Outside of swimming, I'm a school teacher. That's my, that's my main job. And I teach sport, uh, coach our rugby team. I run our school's gym. I'm also the head of strength and conditioning for the Australian junior team. And I lecture or I run the level one and two courses as a presenter for our coaching body, the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. That's, yeah. You got a lot going on, Andrew. Yeah. That's a lot. So that's, that's great. You got to come out and 
to visit Austin. First first time to Austin, right? To yeah, first time. And and I guess the way that came about is in Australia, there's a there's a fantastic in, initiative by the ASCA where you can apply for funding if you if you have that dream trip or maybe there's a coach you've always wanted to go and see and and learn from. You can apply for that, and it's quite popular. I think there's a couple of hundred applications the year that uh, I applied for mine, and I was just very very lucky uh, that Julian Jones decided to to give me that grant and. And I wanted to see the college system. I knew how many Olympians the college system produces and, and just how much of a powerhouse it is. And, and the question I asked was, what's what's the best college? What What is uh, America's best college to visit for sport? And the answer was University of Texas, Austin. Yeah, so pretty, pretty big brand, huh? Yeah. 38 hours later, door to door. <laughs> 38 hours. 38 hours later, here I am. Uh, walking around and, yeah, you know, the joke this week has been that I've got a lot of jet lag, but I've probably got even more knowledge lag of, of just cool. the things that I've seen and experienced so far. I know. We haven't hopefully disappointed in, in the food over here. I know when I was in Australia, the, like I know I've shared with you, I love coffee and the flat whites over there are, are to die for. So hopefully you've got some good Texas food and hopefully it hasn't, uh, we haven't put too much weight on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you certainly have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hey, well, thanks for sharing that, Andrew. And, uh, you know, one of the things kind of just uh, I've talked to Julian about this. You and I have kind of briefly touched on it. Go into a little bit of your certification process the best you can. I know in the U.S., collegiately, we have two governing bodies, the CSCCA, Collegiate Strength Coaches Association, and the NSCA, National Strength Coaches Association. Those are the two governing bodies that all of our college, you have to be either certified either under one or both. So at least one of them. And the, the the interesting thing about the U.S. I found different when I was in Australia was that it seems like your certification process is a bit more rigorous. Would that be accurate? I, I believe so. Without yes. knowing a whole heap, only from what you've told me about your certification process, yes. I know in the in the in the the U.S. you can. There's so many different certifications out there. You kind of ask the question: Where's the standard? Of credibility, where's the standard of of uh, excellence of you know that this is a great certification? So, I know that's one thing. Just visiting with Julian and now with you and being over there, that's really intrigued me at the process. And I know in the U.S., I know that I know the CSCCA is definitely moving towards a more rigorous. They're the the only certification where you have to do 640 hours of an internship on the floor while getting before you can even sit for the exam. And I know the NSCA has a, a great uh, certification as well. So both of those serve our bodies well, our, our coaches. So go into a little bit about how do you get certified through the ASCA in Australia. Okay. So there's four levels to the certification process. And then I guess running laterally to that, there's an accreditation scheme. So if, if I start with the levels, the, the scheme, the scheme will make sense. So if we go in at level zero, that's no prerequisites. You don't need any prior education. And I guess the target market there might be you decide that you're going to coach your son's basketball team and you just want to learn a little bit more about speed and agility for, for your own coaching. Yeah, that okay. makes sense. Yep. And that one can be done all online. It's not very difficult to do, but I guess as, as well, it doesn't give you a whole heap of accreditation. So it's set up probably more for people with a genuine interest in learning it. Uh, then we get to our ASCA level one, and that's aimed at probably a variety of different sports coaches uh, across all sports that we offer in Australia, PE teachers or, or um, physical education teachers that want to update their skills and want to be able to run their school gyms better, university students, personal trainers, um, group fitness instructors, etc. And the level one is a two-day face-to-face course content, 10 hours of supervised prac, and then a small workbook, an eight or 10-page workbooklet. Mm-hmm. And um, again, that's that's a good lead into strength and conditioning. The level two is is probably where the the benchmark starts to get set uh, to have you to get into your level two. You need to have your level one as a minimum. Plus, you need to be working with state and national level athletes or a good high school program. Uh, the other way that you can get into that is to have completed at least two years of your exercise science or um, kinesiology, I think you'd call it here, or your physiotherapy degree. So that's, yeah. how, that's how you gain entry to your level two. So straight away, there's there's people that won't actually be able to get into their level two. They'll have to go back and do the level one or, or yeah. try and reapply another time. 
Uh, to finish your level two, you need to do 60 hours of supervised prac. You need to submit a journal article for the ASCA journal. It doesn't have to be published, but it needs to be at that standard. Uh, and normally that is a literature review of the participant's choice, something that they're interested in. And there is a substantial work booklet. So from memory, my my work booklet was was probably in the vicinity of thirty thousand words, and you essentially have to demonstrate that it's a book. Yeah, you can you can periodize yeah. for a year. You can design an annual plan. You know what you're doing. And um, level twos now, particularly in our rugby codes, are often the minimum requirements. So if a if a job came up in professional rugby and you wanted to apply for that, you would need an exercise science degree and your level two. Without your level two, you'd have um, trouble actually obtaining that job. And then the the final level uh, is your level three. And the level three, there's only an intake once every two years, and it's n- it's never been more than twenty four people. It gets actually gets an intake mm-hmm. there. So me personally, I did not I did not successfully get into my first level three, and my second attempt to get in, I was, I was accepted. Luckily. And your level three, you stand there in front of your peers who are all working at a similar level to you and you present on your beliefs on different qualities of strength or speed, agility, flexibility, athlete monitoring, uh, what have you. And then there's a, a large amount of time that's that's set aside for questions. And also sitting in that room is, is normally the board of the ASCA or some of the master coaches. Yeah. And so it gives them an opportunity to, to ask you and to, I guess to really challenge you on, on what you believe and, and how you go about your practice. So, yeah, it's, I found it a very, very useful course that the assessment involves personal reflection. You know, what did you believe before the course? What have you learned now? What does current research say? So it's a great opportunity, I guess, to, to test yourself and, and to be mm-hmm. forced to self-evaluate what you do. And you also need to successfully run a seminar for ASCA on a topic of your choice. So... They're the levels. Now, running laterally to that is an accreditation scheme. And again, that's four different levels. An associate level, you only need your level one. Then you can be a professional scheme Mm -hmm. coach. And that means you need to have worked at least 600 hours in professional sport, which sounds similar to what you were saying before about the certified training conditioning specialist. Uh, The elite coach, you need to have done 10,800 hours and you need to be working with athletes at a national level or above or people that derive their income from sport like a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. Then a master coach, you need to have done that but across multiple sports. So you can't just be, I guess, a one-trick pony. You need to have worked in a variety of football codes or in a variety of Olympic sports and achieved success in, in all of that. So me as a school teacher. I'll never be able to be a master coach unless I do become a full-time training yeah, conditioning coach. Yeah, you step away, yeah, yeah. It's, it's too far a step away, which, which I'm comfortable with. I understand the rationale as to why, and I'm not disputing it, but it's, um, it's very hard. I think there would, there'd probably only be 10 or 15 master coaches in Australia, maybe 40 or so elite coaches, and then maybe 100, 150 pro scheme coaches now. So, yeah, that's, that's our accreditation scheme. It's, uh, it's definitely a longitudinal journey, but, uh, but I believe the the hurdles that you overcome to, to get those awards and certifications that serve you well in your practice when you when you earn it. Yeah. No, I like that. I appreciate you sharing that. I know, I mean, I think, I really feel like that's where we're headed in, uh, in the U.S. I feel like that the future for sure in accreditation and certification, the standard's only going to get higher. Um and I think that's a good thing because that means we're going to be have we'll have better coaches, and which we have better coaches, and that's that's going to lower the risk of you know whether it's malpractice or somebody not knowing what they're doing when they're working with our young athletes today, and you know sports in general across. I know um, I have a family, I have four daughters. I know just seeing the club volleyball scene in the U.S. It's blow it's blowing up. Soccer is blowing up. And so you're starting to see these other uh, women's lacrosse, uh, these other sports are starting to just get huge now. And with that kind of happening, you're starting to see more opportunities in America for other other ways to use, you know, your strength and conditioning certifications. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's it's only a positive thing uh, that you guys definitely have such a, a rigorous and very difficult 
process you got to go through because it's not for everybody. No. Yeah. You know, and and uh, you want you want the you want really good coaches working with your athletes. So that's incredible. Thanks for sharing that. I think um, it's hard when you're when you're looking for a job and. You, you kind of feel that the, the process is unfair before, I guess, you're on the other side of the fence when you do have a more secure job. But definitely being on the other side of it now, I, I do believe it is fair enough and I do believe it's correct and a just way to, to evaluate a coach's performance. And, yeah, I, th- I think there's just two ways of looking at it depending on whether you have a job or not. Yeah, and I really like to, as you get up into your higher levels with you, what you guys do, and we kind of have some of that with the CSCCA as well, but you have to stand in front of your peers and you got to be able to defend your program and explain why you're doing what you're doing. And I mean, just over the last three to five years, I've seen, you know, some young coaches that would, you know, years and years ago, they would easily get in and get certified, but it's just, it's not happening. And again, I, I see that as a positive that we just keep raising the bar in our profession. And uh, again, I think coming coming back from Sydney last year, that really, left a really good impression on me that just made me want to be a better coach. When you get around coaches that are excellent in what they do and demand the best out of each other, it just makes you want to become better. So uh, we appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Uh, talk a bit for a minute about, you know, you talked about your kind of what you're doing now. Now, you primarily work with swimmers and rugby. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah. Talk a little bit about some of the principles, your beliefs, core values, how you program and lay out a, a yearly plan for, is it the same? Do you change stuff? Do you have different approaches with different personalities, different coaches? Kind of give us a, a little insight into how you think. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll just do swimming. That's that's probably the one people get the most benefit out of. So swimming is a 12-month-of-the-year sport, can be very hard to, to periodize for. Swimmers typically train anywhere from eight to 15 times a week. So they're lords of volume. They just do excessive, excessive volume. Man, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Just a human body is powerful. Yeah. And I, I have some swimmers that have gone on camps where they'll do over a hundred kilometers per yeah. week in the pool alone. So there's, you, you really do have to take that into consideration with your, your gym programming. Uh, swimmers also have quite unique physical characteristics. So I guess the most common one that you'd see is a, a swimmer with hypermobile knees and then kyphotic shoulders. Um, yeah. Pretty common, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty common. Or they or they come in with the, the absence of a neck, you know, they've got these huge overactive upper traps like a butterfly or yeah, so there's this unique physical uh, characteristics you need to be aware of. But 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 anyway, that that aside, when when you look at a at a swimming year in Australia, similar to a lot of Olympic sports there's a nationals in April, which used to be our selection, but no longer is. Then we have our big selection trial in June. And then that leads on to normally a world championships or a pan packs, or in this current cycle, it's going to be the Tokyo Olympic games in August. So that's, that's the big one that you're going for. So swimmers come back from these major meets and you've got a small block, October, November, December, and then you really need to start ramping things up um, for that Tokyo Olympics. So generally, when, when, when I look at it, the if, if I start with the three broadest categories, general preparation, special preparation, and specific preparation, the general preparation for me is I'm really building work capacity and I'm just making sure that the physiologically their tissue can handle greater training loads as they, as they go on. So if I can make them a little bit stronger or even better if I can make them more robust so they don't break down when these huge training volumes start coming in, then I believe that I've, I've done my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, a degree of athleticism certainly helps, but it's not, it's not essential. Like I don't, I don't need my swimmers to be fantastic sprinters or to have really good first step quickness or anything like that. They just need to generally be holistically an athlete moving forward so that they don't get injured. So that's always my first goal. When I get to the special preparation phase, which is essentially where we are now at our, at my swimming club, I do try and look at them individually. And I've got, in a squad of about 30 swimmers, I've got eight or nine of them that I do give individual programs for, and the rest kind of get a more, a more generalist style program. When I'm programming for them individual, I'm very eager to get feedback from the coach, the biomechanist, the physiologist, plus what I see in the gym. 
and I construct start constructing, I guess, a special program for them based on their stroke, distance, etc. Uh, and then finally, their specific preparation, which is when we're leading into a competition, I guess, is when I try and use the base of exercises that I've done with them in that time prior and really try and put that power and some of that speed strength stuff on them. So just just to give you an example, uh, one of my swimmers is a butterfly, a 200-meter butterfly. In his general preparation phase, I'm just making sure he has a balanced gym program that he's not getting cooked when he goes to the pool and that we're building some strength. When I get to special preparation, I might start adding in things that I believe he can work on. So for example, one exercise that I did with him this year was a, a rollout, probably a familiar exercise. You know, you can do them with a wheel, but yeah. we did that with rings instead. So I really wanted to stress him in that plane that was a little bit more specific to butterfly. When we get to a specific preparation, I'll do a lot of work with uh, contrast training. So he'll do, for example, one of his contrast sets are three heavy weighted chins, jump down, take the weights belt off, and then do another three chin-ups straight away as quickly as he can, but just with his own body weight, trying to create that central nervous system stimulus. Tonic effect, yeah. Uh, And then we'll also do some speed strength work where we might superset, you know, squats and throws or um, bench and throws off the ground. And then finally, the one that that I like, and I know it's popular here because I've I've spoken to you and a lot of coaches about it, is the French contrast training method. Uh, So for this particular swimmer, we'll do heavy-weighted chins followed by medicine ball slams but standing on a bench. Mm -hmm. Then I'll go around and do some clap push-ups. And then the final one is we put a large band around the bar for chin-ups, similar to what you might do if someone was really bad at chin-ups and still learning them. And we have the cue, you know, head hit the ceiling. And that's that supra, you know, beyond maximal effort where I'm trying to get him to just throw himself over that bar and see if... Yeah, speed. Yeah, Dynamic, yeah. yeah, and I guess my my goal there is if I, if his brain is a computer, and his muscles are like the programs in the computer, I'm just trying to trying to increase that wiring. So when his brain goes to click on that program, hey, let's go fast, or we need to turn quicker, or I want to put more pull through the water. It's just a quick, seamless transition. Mm-hmm. So because that outside of turns and starts, that's that's probably the only other real place you're going to get benefit from a swimming gym program. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. I want to. You kind of caught my attention. You you were talking about something before that. I want to circle back and just hear a little bit of your thoughts on. So this podcast is the team behind the team, and we've definitely over the years um, at Texas, and you're seeing it across in the college model now. This performance team model, uh, where you have a nutritionist. Uh, uh, we call it sports medicine or athletic training. You guys call it physio. Physiotherapy, yeah. Uh, you talk about a biomechanist. Yeah. Um, that would probably be a little bit more here, like our applied sports scientists. Those guys kind of help with some of that. Uh, then we also have a mental health coordinator here. So we have this team of individuals that kind of are behind the, the team for performance. Can you talk a little bit? How do you guys operate? You That sounded like a large team. Mm-hmm. And so I know you guys have been doing this for a while. Kind of share kind of how you operate a little bit as a, as a performance team behind the scenes. So we have all of our, in Australia, it's called a categorized or a funded swimmer. And that's that top eight or nine people that I was telling you about before. That means that your personal best time or your most recent result would have placed you in a world championship final or thereabouts. That's how you get funding for some of these services that we're talking about. So all of these swimmers, we do an individual performance plan, and that essentially involves the group of all the support staff with the assistance of the coach to design individual work-ons for for a particular swimmer. So to conceptualise that for you, I'll I'll just use an example of a 50-metre sprinter that I work with, and I'll just give you his, his most recent individual performance plan. The biomechanist from filming his swimming noticed that his left hip but not his right hip was dropping. So when an underwater camera was watching him, we could see that, and whether that's anterior or lateral sling work that we needed to do, whether it was basic to core it. strength to correct it. Yeah. Whether that's it, pretty that's pretty sweet. Yeah. So so the you know the message mm-hmm. for me there is and, and and keep in mind I'm I'm not here to say that that gym is the thing that makes a swimmer good. You know, it's a sw- 
my my work is to assist the swimmer. It's not the basis of their of their program, but that's an example of a take home that I can take back to the gym. I can use it to start a conversation with that particular swimmer and then modify an exercise. And the exercise we ended up doing was a plank across two benches. So you're, you know, there's a gap in the middle and you're doing a dumbbell one arm row in between the benches. And then I could manually correct his hips if he lost it. And I actually saw one of your coaches doing a very similar exercise yesterday with your with um, your swimming team. So that was the biomechanist input. You know, there's something that they could improve. Um, the coach picked up that he could start really well and that the part of the race that he was fading in was was the back end. And in a 50-metre sprint, you know, and especially someone like Caleb Dressel representing Team USA, you really can't afford to be dropping off at the end of a race. So it might come down to 0.001, first to fourth, right? Yeah, small margin, yeah. So again, it brings up the conversation, do we need to look at circuit work or maybe there's some stuff we can do on the sleds and just give him that last bit of an extra boost and, and whether it's just really small enzyme adaptations <clears throat> in his muscle that he might get an adaptation from um, or whether it's a mental resilience thing or something that can help him. Again, that's feedback I can take to the gym. The physiotherapist uh, did a screening on him and a movement screen and he picked up that he was getting quite tight in his pec minor and he's getting quite tight in his subscap. So again, for me, when I'm when I'm writing his warm up, when I'm writing his activation, his mobility work, I can be sure to to add those things in. Yeah, um, clean it up a little bit. Clean it up a yeah. little bit. So it's just a great. I mean, I'm very very fortunate to work with the people uh, that I do, and I'm certainly very grateful of the of the collaboration that we have, and it just informs your practice to make it a little bit better. And, and I know the things I'm talking about. You know, they're little one percenters, but I think. A really good point that was brought up to me a couple of years ago is one percent. If it was if it was a scientific study, one percent probably doesn't mean mm-hmm. much at all. Like that that wouldn't get the p value in, in a statistical analysis to even get reported. But one percent to a professional athlete is a huge, huge deal. It's a large margin for them, especially that, at that level. Yeah, and it's so hard to gain. So um, yeah, that's that's how that um, collaboration process works. And you know, I've missed, sorry, I've missed out on the dietitian and the psychologist there, who who also you know this sprinter wanted to gain weight, and our dietitian was essential in, in helping him do that safely. And we all know, like, there's a there's a popular view of how you're meant to gain weight versus probably a scientifically accurate way of how to do it. And, and our dietitian was essential there, and our psychologist was essential in preparing him appropriately for his big events. So, yeah, everyone everyone had an equal role there in helping and, and the head coach is the one that ultimately gives this feedback and facilitates these meetings and, yeah, like I said, I'm just very, very grateful to, to work in the environment that I do. Yeah, there's a book and I'm blanking on the author's name. It's called The Checklist Manifesto. And, I'm, again, you can look it up on Amazon, but there's a chapter in there and it's called The Day of the Master Builder. And it's basically what you're saying that the back in the old days when they built homes, the master builder, he did everything. He laid the foundation, put up the wood, the sheetrock, the plumbing, the electrical. Yeah. But today, uh, with technology, with specialties, like what you're talking about in sport, uh, everybody has a specialized niche mm. that they're, they can, they're really good at it, and they have to work as a team. Now, if you had to say what would be some of the traits or qualities you've seen for a performance team to operate really, really well together with good chemistry and synergy, what would you say those traits would be? Probably the most important one for me would be things run smoothly when everyone knows their role and when everyone knows their job. And I think a lot of workplace disruptions uh, in sport come from when people want to step outside of their job boundary and people want to try and micromanage someone else's role or people want to be, be across two different yeah. types of job roles. I think when, when everyone knows their job and when everyone does their job well, and that's that's when things work seamlessly. Um, I don't think you can have an ego, especially in strength work, because there's, you're just, there's so many mistakes that you'll learn from and there's so many decisions that you have to make that sometimes you really do just have to wear it and, t- and take the lesson from a, a program that didn't quite work or a, or a performance that you didn't quite want to happen that happened. And, and these are things that are, that's just part of sport. It's never linear yet. You have to be able to, to weather a bad night to get to dawn or, you know, there's always a rainbow at the end of the storm, whichever analogy you want to use. Mm-hmm. 
And I think they're probably the two biggest things for me from a communication perspective. Again, I'm very lucky. The the swimming coach that I work for is ex-military and he was uh, Marines in the English Navy for many years. And so he takes his leadership as absolute, but then he's very, very good at making sure that everyone has their job role and everyone knows their role that they have to do. So in, in that regard, he's, a, he's an excellent manager and, and a, a good man to work for. I know that's 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 really good uh, good point. I think because what I hear you saying is you've got to be. It's like this this new trend. You've got to be really really good at your job, but you've also got to have an authentic humility and this kind of core value of being a team player, so that the team can operate together to keep the athletes' number one goal and priority as their best interest to perform, right? And so I think, you know, I think it's pretty cool that the era we're in with this this team stuff is that seeing coaches, seeing these performance teams work together and see these these just bright minds, uh, see these bright minds come together and share all their knowledge and information to help, you know, like you said, that, that 1% or sometimes less to draw that out of an athlete, that's what it's going to take. But if you don't work together as a team, that's going to be a barrier to helping those teams and athletes. So thank you for sharing that. Um, going back to a little bit of your programming and working with the coaches, give us a little insight on, I know here in the U.S., sometimes sport coaches, you know, they have their way, they want things done. And ultimately, we are we're servants and stewards of their program. It's their program, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you manage... How do you work with some of your sport coaches that maybe they don't agree with what you're doing or what, how have you kind of, have you learned some lessons from that? What have you changed and how do you kind of manage that? Share a little bit of that best that you can without, you know, protect them for sure. But (laughs) again, probably a lot of it comes down to your genuine interest as a strength coach with helping that team or that athlete out and, and working with those coaches. So I genuinely was just very interested to learn about the sport of swimming, which means I wanted to go down and watch them train and I wanted to ask questions and I wanted to make time to do it. And I think that probably helped the coach with the buy-in for me, so to speak, or to, or to trust me because he could see that genuinely I was enthusiastic and I was keen. If I'd been there taking photos to put on a personal Instagram page or you know, updating my LinkedIn on my, on my first day there or whatever, I probably wouldn't have got that trust from him. But trust definitely is earned. I don't, I don't, you can't just get a coach's trust. And coaches, have, often coaches have maybe had a bad experience with a strength and conditioning person or, you know, they've been there and done that. A lot of coaches are, are quite knowledgeable themselves about strength training. And it really needs to be this gradual process where they need to start thinking that even if you're not the best when you start, that you still care. And even if you're not the best when you start, that you're you're going to learn, and you're, you know you're not going to make the same mistake twice, or you're going to learn from that mistake. And I think when you can get through those two hurdles, coaches will start to to buy in with you. But I think you, what you said there really hit the nail on the head. It, it's it's the coach's program, and you need you That's need right. to you need to line your beliefs up with the beliefs of the coach. And there's, I mean, there's difficult conversations in, in any workplace and I guess you need to, to tactically choose when you're going to bring certain things up if, if you want to change in, in a program. But overall, like if the, if the coach wants something to be done, you, you kind of need to fall into line eventually or else you'll, you'll find that you, you don't have a job anymore. Because That's right. Of, you'll yeah. move on pretty quick. And, and like what you said, it's, it's a team mentality and the, the coach is like the team captain and, and you need to follow the team captain as well. So yeah, I agree with that. I think just over my years, I know as a young strength coach, I was so bent on like this is the only way we could do it. But as I've gotten older and I've gotten better perspective, you really need to make sure, like you just said, you want to show that head coach that, man, you, you're not only in, interested in a program, but you're invested. Mm. And you're going to go do – and it's amazing to me those little things like going to practice and watching and just observing and not, not sharing your opinion, how over time – you build credibility with that coach and you you earn their trust in you and then they start giving you more bandwidth and more more rope so to speak to train their team and so i think oftentimes we can have all this knowledge experience 
and this passion to do this, but I think we've got to start, we've got to pump the brakes, slow down, back up, and start with the relationship first. Yeah. And then the rest of it will come, as you said, in time. And everybody's different. Every coaches, uh, they, they give you their trust at their own time. And some are a little harder to win over. Some might be a little quicker, and that's totally up to them. But you can do your part by by showing that you're invested and you're committed to their team. So that's good stuff. Thanks for for sharing that. Um, Want to kind of go to a next question. In the U.S., technology is on the rise, and we're really just starting. It's becoming an age of data in the U.S. for sure. Every time, it seems like I turn on a computer or email. We're getting sold this piece of equipment. This technology is the new thing. This is the new buzz, and everybody, this team's using it, blah, 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 right? Talk about technology uh, and athlete monitoring. And can you kind of just briefly share how you use technology over in Australia with your teams? Yeah, so the, the I guess the two main uses of technology for me and if my biomechanist, the biomechanist that I work with or the physiologist that I work with was here, they'd probably be able to speak for a couple of hours about the technology they use. But the, the greatest use for me is, I guess, checking their training loads in AMS, uh, which is like our athlete monitoring system. And I can also gain access there to any physio report, mm-hmm. any feedback from other coaches. That can be very, very useful. There's, there's also a, a kind of a comments box as part of the swimmer's logbook that they'll fill out as well. And that can be really useful because you, you might pick up something in there such as, I was really sore from Wednesday's gym. And then you might notice that comment the exact same or different wording a week later. And again, that's that's enough for you to start a conversation with that particular athlete. Hey, I noticed you were sore two weeks in a row. Is it is it an exercise? Is it this rep scheme? You know, what's happening? What's the pool like exactly before this? Um, and yeah, so that's that's probably the main one with the training loads. Look, just looking at how many kilometers they're doing in a week, or the types of training they're doing in a week, and I guess that can inform your practice. It doesn't mean that you, you know, you rip your gym program program up and you start again, but it it might mean that you you understand if they're not quite hitting the percentages that you had prescribed, or it might mean that you're gonna drop one exercise or add in an extra mobility one, add in an extra core one instead, just to give them that active recovery because. Like we've discussed, the most probably the most important thing in this data age, and to give you an example, it's swimming after Rio, there was already times out maybe a week or two after Rio, all the likely gold medal times for Tokyo had been released. So then you've got four years to to do the maths with your swimmers and try and engineer a human being that's capable of hitting that time. Who those marks? And they. Hey. Hitting those marks. Yeah, hitting yeah. those marks. And you should win a gold medal. You should make a, a final at the Olympics, right? So it's very clear. Swimming can be brutal, brutally, brutally clear what time you need to hit. And it really comes down to your system. And, and yeah, like I said, I, I agree with you in this data age where I honestly feel like a lot of performance now is, is engineered. And um, yeah, there's still a lot to be said for the art of coaching as well, but but more and more of it seems to be on this engineering side or hit this time, hit that time and and you should make it. So the other one that I use, we've, we've got a push center, push sensor, which is similar to, I think you guys had a catapult one down there and a, and a tendo unit. And again, for me, I mean, I've been lucky where I've had interns that could do all of the data crunching for me, give me a report on the tonnage they've lifted and, and what kind of speeds they were doing. But now, if in in the absence of a of an intern, I'm I'm a little bit cautious because I don't want to be looking at a iPad if they're doing a clean or a squat or even a weighted chin up and miss a, a movement fault. So all all of this stuff that we do in the gym with them, it, it should transfer to to their swimming. And if I'm training a poor movement pattern and then that negatively influences their stroke, then I've really done a disservice to the coach and that particular swimmer. So in the, in the last kind of two phases before they go to a major competition, like a strength speed and a yeah. speed strength or rate of force development, ballistic mm-hmm. power, I'm, I'm sure you've all got your different themes. Yes, I'm interested in their, in their bar speed. And that comes back to that 1% thing that I was talking about before where we're looking for just one more extra percent for them to use. But in the initial phases, I'm, I'm not as fast. So yeah, they're my two different types of data that I use with the swimmers. Yeah, that's... Uh... I almost heard you say, if we're not careful with tech, you didn't say this obviously uh, verbatim, but 
it can be a bit of a distraction and you can kind of lose your way because you get attracted with all the bells and whistles. Mm. And that, like you said, that should be information that allow, I like what you just said, that gives me context to have a conversation. Yeah. Doesn't mean I'm going to change anything. Yeah, yeah. But hey, let's gain more understanding and see if we can figure out a better way to do this where that's not becoming the the central point. Do you guys share some of that data with your coaches, or you just kind of keep it to the yeah. to the performance team? How do you do that? No, no, we we I, sh- I share everything with the coaches, and definitely in those performance reviews, uh, they're, they're the sorts of things that we we bring up and and we have a look at. Our biomechanist also tests our swimmers maybe once or twice a year just to have a look at their force velocity profile as well. And mm-hmm. again, that can inform your practices to seeing who might be really strong but a bit slow, like a you know a big train pulling out of the station versus who's maybe a little bit too weak given the loads that they're trying to lift. You know, if it's a if it's a 40 kilo bench pull and someone's in that one rep max kind of zone on a velocity based training graph, then you're thinking we you know, we need to get this person a lot stronger before we introduce anything else. So again, like you've said, it in, in informs practice. Do you share data with your athletes? Yes. The bar velocity stuff, they, they want to know. And some of them in particular will get quite competitive with one another. Yeah. And that can, can be a that. good thing and a bad thing. Yeah, good and bad. Yeah. Yep, so good drive up performance, upward pressure, bad if and the classic example for me, and that's probably when I realised it was it was time to reconsider my velocity-based training, was a touring team from another country came and did a camp at the Gold Coast. They came into the gym. We were At this point in time, we were measuring the speed of chin-ups and we're looking at the velocity of people going on chin-ups. These guys had done this before and they had worked out that if you throw your chin in the last kind of third of the chin-up, you'll get a faster bar speed, a faster speed recorded. So then my guys can't work out how it's possible that these people from another country that didn't look like they'd done as much resistance training as us are getting a faster chin-up speed and they worked out it was from this chin throw. So then they're doing this chin throw to get the faster bar speed to compete with these people from another country. And it's, you know, where the point of a chin-up is not to get a fast speed and it's definitely not to throw your chin over the bar. It's to develop lat strength and hopefully power and rate of force development so you can apply that to your swimming stroke, get more pull through the water. So once the focus had been lost, that's really probably for me the classic one where I... Yeah, that you bring... I mean, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, as we move into the future, you don't want to just be all just collecting data and, and just allowing that drive the training. I mean, there's a big part of training, like you said, it's internal. It's motivation. Mm. It's drive. Mm. It's I don't feel great today. But you know what? You still got to go compete and win. Mm. And that's just real life. And I think there's a big part of training and coaching that that's instinct. And you, you it's, a, it's about having a conversation. It's about knowing athletes individually and adjusting their plan, too, through that relationship and just knowing them, knowing their bodies and educating them. And then you also getting to know them through relationship and then using some of that data to tweak their program and get it dialed in. So I think it's it's a blend of that. I, I definitely I like how you said that. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, you you can never just park yourself in one camp. That's uh that's not the way to do it. You need to take little bits and pieces of what you like from something, mm-hmm. and then just keep building your model of best practice. Or think about the constraints you have in your environment and take what you like from a concept and and apply it there in that way. It's good stuff. Um, where do you see the innovations? Where do you see the future? Let's say five to near five to ten years from now, strength conditioning. What do you kind of see coming down the coming down the pipe in Australia? And I think this is we're probably, in all honesty, I'd say we're probably ten years at a minimum behind the USA in a lot of our athletic development. But the big thing that I'm starting to notice is that strength work is getting introduced at an earlier and earlier age, and these age-old rumours, you know, strength training stunts your growth or, you know, you're going to get growth plate injuries if you do resistance training before the age of 12 or whatever, I think uh, they're starting to dissipate. Look, I'm hearing less and less of that and I'm seeing more and more schools getting higher qualified strength and conditioning coaches and full-time strength and conditioning coaches to run their high school gym and more and more people are getting access to this service. So I, I definitely can see in Australian sport the next generation that comes through should be much more athletically developed. Uh, I guess you could say the same in swimming. And 
with the Australian junior team, I'm I'm always a, a little bit alarmed when I, I go into camp with them. And junior, a, a world junior swimming team is, is defined as under the age of 19. And I'm always shocked when we go to do our gym sessions there and I have swimmers representing their country at a, at a junior Olympics or a junior Commonwealth Games or a junior Pan Pax Games, 17, 18 years old, and have never done weights or the only strength training they've done for their swimming is circuits with, you know, like burpees or the rowing machine and, and things that you, you wouldn't really associate with, with strength work. And I, and I just can't stress enough how important strength training is for swimmers on, on so many fronts, whether it's their bone mineral density or their basic coordination, uh, or it's making them more springy and tenderness for those starts and turns, whether it's improving their power per stroke. Uh, whether it's protecting them from injuries and making them more robust to handle heavy training loads, or even if you just look at a swimmer, they're not always, you know, some of the football guys I've seen on this trip or some of the track and field athletes that I've seen today, you could tell me that they're a a basketballer, a decathlete, a football player or baseball player or what have you, and I believe you just because of the athleticism. Swimmers you normally see and you think, well, they're they're a swimmer. There's, There's no transfer to any other sport or maybe rowing. Mm-hmm. So they're still phenomenal athletes. Please don't take offense if you're a swimmer listening to this. But <laughs> No, I, I, I definitely, you're seeing, uh, I know there's a new organization they started here in the, the U.S. for high school. And I know the guys uh, personally, Gary Schofield and Rich Gray. And um, basically it's a certified uh, a governing body for high school strength coaches. And I, th- I think I say it right, national High School Strength Coaches Association, and they're starting to do certifications and conferences. And so you're starting to see this, like you just said, uh, higher quality of coaches at these lower level in middle school and high yeah. school. It's starting to happen. It's starting to blossom, and and I think that's positive. So uh, that's definitely something we're seeing kind of get traction here in the U.S. And hopefully it it'll be really cool to see at some point all these these governing bodies really come together, not only support each other, but get unified on the front. I think that's something that would, in the future, I hope to see for, for our uh, for the professionals coming up in the, in the field. So um, we're kind of getting near the end here, Coach. And just some couple personal questions here. However you feel like, uh, what would be your dream job? And if you could do whatever you wanted and money was not an issue, what would you be doing, Andrew? Do you want my diplomatic answer or my actual answer? Give us your actual answer. Come on if, now. If, uh, if money was no problem, I think I'd definitely be working out or training for a minimum of two to three hours a day. And I think I'd be surfing for the rest of it. And I'd be completely uncontactable That's on good. email or phone. I like it. No, I, lifting and training, I feel you. Surfing, I'm not touching. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some bad experiences in the in the ocean. Yeah. And uh, have been taken off my feet by some pretty good sized waves. So you'd, you'd have to get me some counseling. We'd have to go see the, the sports psych or the mental health coordinator first to get me out there. But, uh, no, you know what? In all honesty, uh, I really enjoy coaching. I think that that's, that's probably my calling and becoming a school teacher has helped my coaching so much as well. So, so I probably can't really fault uh, any of the experiences that I've had because they've led me to such a, an awesome job and, and then to get to do trips like this and, and whatnot, it's, uh, I'd, I do feel that I'm I'm living my my kind of best life, and I'm just eternally grateful and appreciative for the coaches that have taken a chance on me and, and allowed me to develop the school that's employed me, and then people like yourself who have let me in here and treated me like a guest of honor for a week. It's been um yeah, it's it's unbelievable. I'm still yeah, pinching myself. Yeah, we're it's mutual. I've definitely enjoyed visiting with you, and like I said, Australia, you guys were so uh, kind and just welcoming and hospitable. Uh, that you guys provided when I was I was blown away, and I can't thank you guys enough as well. It's definitely opened my eyes in in our profession. So thank you as well. The feelings mutual. If anybody wants to contact you, get in contact, reach out, ask questions, or just connect with you. I know you're not a big social media guy, but how could they reach you, Andrew? Yeah, so I I don't like social media at all. I don't not, have not I don't have any social yeah. media. Yeah, I, but in saying that. I am an open book. I'd I'd never just brush someone's email. If someone wants material, I'm I'm never going to not reply. That's that's just not my way. I think that 
strength coaches need to connect more. There needs to be a much, much more collaboration and a lot less of this kind of chest beating, you know, I don't like you because they work for them. So probably the best way if I left my email maybe That'd be great. there. And um, it's it's the same when I, when I lecture these courses back in Australia, people say, can you send me an example of an annual plan? And it's, I mean, so long as the swimming athletes I work for aren't using it right now, I've got no problem because I didn't invent an annual plan and I didn't invent periodization. I didn't invent the cycles. They're all things I learned from others. So there's no reason why someone can't learn it from me. And even if I give it to you, you know, you're in a different environment, you've got different constraints. It's just food for thought um, for you as well. So I'll definitely leave my email. And if you do know, if you do want to connect or, or you think that I can help you in some way, please, please do. I'd, I'd be um, happy to help with whatever I can, especially if you're from Austin, Texas or UT. What's your email? Can you can you give it to us over the okay. show? Okay, it's Andrew Pike, and That's so P- I'll spell that out. Yeah, A N D R E W P Y K E underscore S C at hotmail.com and hopefully my accent's not too thick yeah, yeah. and you understand we that. We love it. We love it. <laughs> I think I've used the, the word mate, mate more yeah. this week than I have. You're getting on it. Brecky. You've used brekkie a few brekkie. times. That's that's breakfast for all the listeners. We That's my new term for breakfast is brekkie. Yeah. Well, Andrew, it has been an absolute pleasure and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on the team behind the team podcast. Uh, I know our staff has enjoyed visiting with you. Hopefully, uh, you've had a good experience here, and, and you can throw up the horns over there and, and uh, on the Gold Coast when you get back. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll keep this little, little relationship going. We'll see each other again. So anything you want to say before we can sign I, off? Can I just uh, say one massive thank you to a man back home, Julian Jones, and everyone at ASCA who supported me to come on this trip. I, I really hope that I've represented you guys well. And just secondary to that, could I thank everyone, especially you, Donnie, at the at the University of Texas for being so, so welcoming. I'd, I'd never heard of the concept of Southern hospitality, but boy, don't know what it means now. So I, I can't express my gratitude enough. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time and listening. You're very welcome. And again, thank you, Julian. I know Julian, so we appreciate you, Julian, all you do for the profession. You guys keep raising the bar over there in Australia and we'll do the same here in, in the U.S. So we're out today. Andrew, great to have you here. Hook 'em horns. And from down under, we're signing off here in Austin, Texas. We'll catch you on the next week's show. Hook 'em. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.